0: Thanks again, as always, for listening. I appreciate anybody who listens to even one episode, and I appreciate everyone who's listened to so many. You keep me going. I'm so excited to share that now official on Patreon. You can find my Patreon page, become a member, it's patreon.com backslash chills at will podcast. Peter Real. Again, that's patreon.com backslash. Chills at Will Podcast, Peter Real. My name, of course, is P E T E R R I E H L. Patreon.com backslash Chills at Will Podcast, Peter Real. You can become a member today. The page is officially launched. There are three tiers of membership. Official patron membership tier is $3 a month. And with that, you'll get access to all interview episodes when they're published mostly on Tuesdays with some published on Fridays. There are two to four interviews published each month. Lastly, you'll receive the monthly newsletter with reading recommendations, literary event calendar, and the Chills of Will podcast news, and you'll get a shout-out on a future episode. That is the official patron tier of membership for $3 a month. There's the $5 a month for the all-access patron. With the all-access Patreon membership, you'll have access to all new interview episodes. Each month, okay like said, there are two to four interview episodes. You'll get access to those as well as a monthly bonus episode or two that is an interview or an exploration of themes through two or three texts. One example would be an episode that I did called Righteous and Justified Anger that was explored through the works by Langston Hughes and Ralph Ellison. Or The Power of Flashback was one episode, which explored the endings of The Godfather Part 2, Sleepers, and that was then, This Is Now. With the all-access patron membership, you will also receive a refrigerator magnet with the Chills at Will podcast logo, and the monthly newsletter with reading recommendations, literary event calendar, and the Chills at Will podcast news. You will get a shout-out on a future episode, too. With the VIP patron tier, which is $10 a month, you'll get access to all episodes, a monthly newsletter with reading suggestions and a calendar of literary events and updates on the Chills at Will podcast, access to a monthly AMA, Ask Me Anything, and a t-shirt with the Chills at Will podcast logo. There are two to four monthly episodes and one or two bonus episodes, which are interviews or discussions of themes as seen through multiple texts. VIP patrons will also receive a special shout-out on a future episode. I encourage you to please join Patreon for the Chills of Will podcast. As I say all the time, this is truly a labor of love. This is truly a DIY operation. I started in April of 2020. And it has been an absolute pleasure. 99.999% fun. I've gone to interview people like Disha Filia. What? Matt Bell. Brandon Hobson. Luis Alberto Orea, Gene Guerrero. Gustavo Arellano. Taylor Bias. Gabby Bates. Alice Elliot Dark. Nadia Owusu. And so, so, so many more. Did I say Jess Walter? Did I say Jeff Perlman, Ingrid Rojas-Contreras, Jamil John Kochai, Morgan Talty, Sadie Shore Parks, Rachel Yoder, Vanessa Angelica Villarreal, Kirsten Chen, Sam Quinones, Ion Grillo, Reina Kelly, Zach Harper, Michael Torres, Tracy Kato Kirayama, S.J. Sindhu, Roberto Lovato, Todd Goldberg, Steph Cha, Noel Kassler, Reina Grande, James Tate Hill, Navdeep Dylan Singh, Nikisha Elise Williams, Mia St. John, Susan Muladi daraj Sarah Borjas, and the list goes on and on. Future episodes include conversations with Allegra Hyde, with Justin Tinsley, Jose Antonio Vargas, Laura Worrell, so, so, so many cool people. Patreon.com backslash Chills at Will Podcast Peter Real. What are you waiting for? See you over there. Hello. I am Pete Real, a high school English and Spanish teacher, an avid reader, and an aspiring writer. Thank you for listening to the Chills at Will podcast, in which we explore the visceral beauty of literature and its connection to our culture, our history, and ourselves. Welcome to episode 167 of the Chills of the Will podcast. Pleasure today to be joined by Maidur Vang. A bit about Maider Maidur Vang is the author of Yellow Rain, which is from Grey Wolf Press in 2021, winner of the Lenore Marshall Poetry Prize from the Academy of American Poets, an American Book Award, and a finalist for the 2022 Pulitzer Prize in Poetry, along with her collection, which is called Afterland, which came from Grey Wolf Press in 2017. That was the winner of the first book award from the Academy of American Poets. The recipient of an Maine Literary Fellowship, her poetry has appeared in Tin House, the American Poetry Review, and Poetry, among other journals and anthologies. She teaches in the MFA program in creative writing at Fresno State. Hello, how are you today?
1: I'm great. Thanks for having me on the show.
0: Oh, man, pleasure to have you. Sarah Bolhaus, I don't know that she, you, she would have crossed your path, but she's a Fresno State fresno connection as well right
1: yeah um, yeah i know sarah sarah's a good friend mm-hmm.
0: awesome i haven't had him on the show i'd love to but i'm a huge 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 fan of juan felipe herrera
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh did some work with him back in the day for his when he was the poet laureate And i'm sure i'm forgetting a million great people at fresno state in that area so welcome and it's great to talk to a fellow central valley and central californian
1: thanks for having me and um juan felipe too also a very good friend um and we are also proud to host and boast the California Poet Laureate now in Fresno, Lee Herrick.
0: I knew I was who... forgetting someone. <laughs> yes. That's
1: that's that's pretty recent. So yeah.
0: Right. I mean I mean how retroactive are we going, right? We'll talk Gary Soto, we'll go, we'll go way back, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a pleasure to have you on. You know, the collection which is to my right here is breathtaking. I mean, it's incredible. It's it's truly important, you know, not just good or great, but just important. Obviously, it has a lot to a lot of questions I have for you about about just the politics is not the word, but just the, the subject matter of it. But I'd love to, to kind of start from from the beginning and, and I'd love to know about your early reading. What were you reading? What were you speaking? Um did did you speak Hmong along with English? Were you, you know, monolingual for a while? Were you bilingual? And just kind of your relationship with the written word growing up.
1: Yeah, so I, I grew up in Fresno. I was born and raised here. So I am a I'm, a I'm a Fresno native, Valley native. And my parents uh are refugees, Hmong refugees from Laos. They resettled in the very early 80s, uh originally first in the Twin Cities, and then they relocated here to Fresno. Uh there was family here, and also I think that the, the environment was different. It was There was, there were, there was um, access to agriculture and just proximity to mountains here uh, mm-hmm. for them. And so um, I think that drew them as well as a lot of other Hmong people to this, um, to this area. Mm-hmm. And so I was born just around the time that they resettled here in Fresno. And yeah, I grew up here. I went to all of this. I went to school here, as a child, elementary, middle and high school, and um, I did grow up in a multi-generational household. My paternal grandmother lived with us, so uh it was um it was always you know just a great a great opportunity for me as a child to be exposed to to, to the matriarch of our family and to like right. spend time and and also um uh, hear the Hmong language on a daily basis. I grew up uh, speaking Hmong. Hmong is my first language. Yeah. And um, it wasn't until I had to go to school, obviously, that I started to learn English. Hmm. But my parents didn't speak English, you know, when we were growing up. So Hmong was the the, the language of my everyday, you know, sort of life hmm. as a child. Mm-hmm.
0: I appreciate that. So, I mean, I wonder what you were reading when you got into school. Were you a voracious reader from the very beginning? Mm-hmm. You know, did your parents push you like, hey, learn learn English, learn Hmong, read in Hmong, read in English? How how did that work?
1: Yeah, it's it's interesting because I I I really didn't I mean my parents didn't expect me to take to English so well, but I did. Um I always did really well in you know, the standardized testing that they have students do. But I, but it was surprising that I would do so well in English and in writing and in composition and reading skills. And I read a lot. I certainly did as a, as a kid in a refugee family, hmm. I read a lot of books. Um, I went to the library a lot too. That was often a, a, a place of sanctuary for me, right. just to be able to know that I could go and get you know, f- books that I could bring home and then take back and then get more. Um, that was always a really interesting concept to me. I had mm-hmm. never, it never dawned upon me I, that I could do that. Of course, you know, in, in elementary, I, I I checked out books too, but it was the county library mm-hmm. that um, allowed me to, to to sort of see just the full offering of what was available to me. So I did read um, quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And as a young person, I read, you know, I read your typical YA novels as a kid, you know, I read, you know, uh, Beverly Cleary, and I read, oh, yeah. you know, The Babysitter's Club, and <laughs> R.L. Stein. You know, I mean, just yeah. sort of the books that that kids were reading those days. But that's what really got me started, you know, in literature and in thinking about writing. Um, and 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 I would spend summers just kind of with my nose in books, yeah. whereas everyone else was doing other things. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah man. Um, yeah i still even to this day it's still kind of baffling in a good way right That you can actually you can go to the library and it's just free like mm-hmm. you can just get as many as you want and you know <laughs> so, so yeah amazing.
1: yeah and i think it's i think we we sometimes don't uh, have a appreciate our libraries as much as we should
0: mm-hmm. yeah.
1: um and uh, i think for me as a kid in a refugee family it was a it was a it was just an amazing place yeah
0: right so I mean, I wonder about about ideas of representation. I mean, I I don't think there have been a lot of of was a lot of representation among Hmong people, right? As far as you know, true stories. We not true stories, but you know the 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 long title. But there's one that comes to my mind is you know the spirit catches you and you fall down, which was written yeah. by by a white mm-hmm. white American, right? So and obviously yeah. that wouldn't be something you read as a kid. But I, I'm just wondering about representation, if and when you found it, maybe in older years, mm-hmm. later years.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Because obviously, as a child, I I didn't, there wasn't that access, you know, I did, there, there obviously wasn't very many published Hmong writers, if any, really, at that time, um, that I was aware of as a, as a child, and as a student, you know, going into high school, even. Uh, And I think that, you know, when I discovered the book by Anne Fadiman, The Spirit Catches You, it wasn't mm-hmm. until college, actually. Okay. And that was actually when I began to discover more Hmong writers. And I was exposed to the work that a lot of the uh, the writers in, and, and the literary arts community up in the Twin Cities mm-hmm. in Minnesota that were that they were doing. And so that was sort of my my access to it. But that particular book, um, The Spirit Catches You, I, you know, I think that Thinking about that book and 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 uh, what it's done then and 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 where it's at today, you know, I think it's a it's a book that um you know I think it, it for me is, is is still has so many questions about it, mm. um you know and like you said it's written by a white woman and um at the time there it wasn't as if there was was a Hmong writer who could also write that story, um I think Anne Fadiman found herself to be in a in a very lucky place at a lucky time, you mm. know? Um, but yeah, yeah. I think that there are still lots of questions that people have about that book. And even myself as a writer, um, you know, thinking about, about how that was the book that introduced, um, much of the, 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 the nation to the Hmong community, mm-hmm. you know, and, and for me, I think as a writer, I, I think, wow, Well, I guess I missed out on the opportunity to introduce myself, Mm. you know, and I think that that's what 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 happened in that particular case with that book, for me, at least,
0: you know, retroactively, I mean, was that like, is that something that, you know, hey, like, it was a start, at least it was a book that that gave us a name. I mean, you write in some of the poems about, you know, some people not knowing the Hmong people, but like, or was it just, was it just so exoticized and, you know, written from an outsider's point of view that it wasn't almost even wasn't worth it?
1: You know, it's interesting because the book has, like you said, it's it's um it has it it you know, it, it has allowed for greater awareness of the Hmong community. Um and uh, this the scale to which the book has grown has been tremendous. I mean, it's still being taught, mm. um quite extensively today, um as I understand it. Um, but you know, in some ways, it it, it still is the outsider gazing in. Right. You know, and um, and it's and it's still there are some things that are quite romanticized in the mm-hmm. book, actually, um, which I think a, a lot of Hmong people find to be rather problematic. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, there are very few Hmong voices in that book, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there there is the family, right, which mm-hmm. is the center of the book. And um, and so, you know. It, it's it, and it is a work of creative nonfiction so you're going to get primarily mm-hmm. the author's perspective sure yeah
0: well thank you so i wonder as you you know being a professor now you know fast forwarding some years um being a professor and just in your own reading life um you know what are your what have been some of the books that that have and, and continue to just knock your socks off and you know and your students are into even you know in these days but just uh some of those books or writers that really made you think like just, just game changers for you.
1: Yeah, I think, um, gosh, I think there there are so many writers that I've been so lucky to, to, to have a chance to read and to study Um, modern poets and then, and then more contemporary poets, Um, you know, modern writer, like, you know, more sort of like the, you know, I would say, you know like audrey lord or or adrian rich or some of my some of the my favorites that i've had the chance to teach but mm-hmm. on a more contemporary and recent level i would even save the work of juan felipe herrera hey. who's been uh, such an, an ally and a mentor um, but also uh, beyond just being a great friend a phenomenal poet yes. um, who has Demonstrated such, you know, great craft and and voice and and just richness in his work, hmm. um, and then other po- other poets and writers like Kathy Parkong, Hong,
0: okay.
1: um, yeah, uh, Soma Sharif, hmm. um, Douglas Kearney, uh, just to name a few, yeah.
0: So, I was absolutely stunningly lucky. I was able Doug Kearney was able to come and speak to my students probably on three or four occasions at, at the oh high school wow, level.
1: lucky I mean, my little yeah, my little <laughs>
0: you know self contained classroom in San Pedro, California by long Beach there. i just i was I'm the kind of person like I'll just google especially when I was teaching more English classes and I google and hey, the worst they can say is no, right uh so generous with his time with his uh with his spirit and uh I mean just a genius of a person.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, just you, you read his work or you, you hear him talk and you read, you hear, you can read his talk and it's just, it's brilliant. You know, I mean, just, yeah. Yeah.
0: I had a student probably six or seven years after, after she graduated and she emailed me or Facebook message. One of them said, you know, what what was the name of that, that poet again? The one, you know, Mm -hmm. he um, I mean, his lifestyle, I mean, to see him live is, is a whole different level, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, oh, I'm so glad. I'm so glad you mentioned him. I think he is now in Minnesota. I think from, from he
1: is actually, right? yeah, he's teaching in Minnesota. Yep. Mm-hmm.
0: And mm-hmm. Uh, I think I had to look up the word, but he's also a librettist.
1: Yes, he is right. Multi-talented.
0: <laughs> so multi-talented, definitely. Yeah. definitely. You, you obviously have have gotten a lot of praise and and well received awards for previous works. I wonder just about what you as a writer I mean how did you was there a eureka moment or moments where it was like I can do this people (laughs) want to read my stuff I'm getting feedback from people I really respect how did how did that work you know
1: I I, gosh I wish there was like a an actual moment I could name but no, I mean, it's, it's, it sounds really romantic to have that moment. I wish I had it, but I think that um, I think for me, it it it, it, um, it, 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 especially as a Hmong writer, um, it took longer. Um, Cause I, I always felt like the stakes were higher for mm-hmm. someone like me, at least just coming from a community where um, there were so few of us and, and, and no one really knew the backstory to, mm-hmm why we ended up in this country, how, you know, we became parents, became refugees. And, and so there was, there was still at that time, like I would say even 10 plus years ago, a lot of unknowns about, you know, who, who, who I was, or just even what I was going to do. Um, But I did, you know, I stuck with poetry because I was lucky to be part of a small collective called the Hmong American Writers Circle. Mm and um this this little collective was so sort of committed to wanting to foster creative writing and it was just a couple of friends who would get together sure. in a living room to workshop poems right and 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 eat you know chinese food right mm-hmm. um just you know it was very informal and grassroots and i think just being part of that collective and feeling the sense of community there allowed me to see that I have, you know, that all of us have to continue to do this work. Mm. Um, We have to keep pushing forward so that we can create a space for our voices to be heard too. And um, it wasn't until 2016. So I was part of the Hmong writers and then I went off to get my MFA. And then it wasn't until 2016, a couple of years after my MFA, that I won that prize from the Academy of American Poets, which then allowed for just um, a new door to open up mm. and um, also allowed me to help to to sort of share the work of other Hmong American poets with mm. the, the national audience too, yeah. yeah.
0: I mean, I'm, I'm sure it's, I know it's impossible to generalize. Is there is there an overall sense, like, you know, similar to like, cambodian cambodian americans right with the with pol pot and those years and just the absolute tragedy of those of all those years is there overall in the Hmong community a lot of is there a lot of silence is that silence being broken is it been something that's always been talked about about the refugee times and the reasons mm-hmm. for it
1: yeah you know there um i think that more um Recently, at least, there's been more discourse and dialogue around the war, the secret war. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, in, in fact, there have even been uh, large sort of curated um, exhibits, you know, sort of museum like ex- exhibits that have uh, been been um that have that have been that have appeared uh sort of in community spaces too to help educate the larger community about the history behind the war and to also educate young Hmong people too about right. the war um and so I do think that there is a willingness to have that dialogue and and to to talk about it uh even if it's not about you know sort of digging into the deeper trauma it's at least beginning to educate about what happened why it happened Mm. um what were the conditions that led to this war um etc how how did we end up here how did our parents end up as refugees um so i I do think so yeah yeah i think i think that there's more a little more knowledge happening these days fortunately and there's still more to learn i think um there's there's still more that I think our parents will eventually tell us one day. Mm. Um, but um, for now, I th- um, there, there's been some wide scale community effort to be able to to share not only with the Hmong community, but with the larger community, mm. the, 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 the community at large
0: mm.
1: about the war. Yeah.
0: Well, that line's going to stick with me, the idea of like, even, you know, even parents with still more to say. That's 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 very deep yeah thank you for that. It's a good segue into the book, Yellow Rain, and you start off with some history of this secret war that you talked about it was it's not a it was not a declared war. I guess you would say the Vietnam War wasn't even a declared war, right? but it was definitely secret, secret, secret. You write early on about following the rain. How how so?
1: Yeah, I I guess uh, in the opening of the book, I, I talk about, you know, following the rains or hunting the rains. And I, you know, for me, uh, maybe it's sort of a way for me to think about how I've been also following yellow rain all these years. I spent over 10 plus years doing the research for the book wow. writing the book um so it's been a work in progress and it yeah. really consumed my life for a very long time so I would I guess that's where I, that phrase comes in yeah
0: well it shows 10 year, ten years of research wow the the poetry question which is
1: yeah there uh, there's sort of a an online magazine and they uh, they did a review on the book right is exactly. that the yeah mm-hmm. yeah
0: and they they write about it about is that this book defies genre. Um, you know, you have five sections; they're, they're called compositions, compositions one through five. It's I think it serves as like the, oh boy, I can't think of the word. The epigraph, you know, Raul Sorita, the idea, this idea of words words don't die. What I guess just a larger question about what what's did you have a goal or goals in mind? Was there like, like they say, it does defy genre. It's not all sonnets. It's not all, you know, this and that it's, it's got government, uh, documents. It's got, you know, some of them superimposed on top of the other, Mm -hmm. you know, some more bold than the other. It's, it's just, um, an amazing, just, uh, cornucopia of, of different Mm -hmm. styles and stuff. What was, was this something like, Hey, I needed to do this for myself. Was this, Hey, this is a call to action. I guess kind of, what were some of your, your goals?
1: Yeah, I I I think when when I started writing the book, I I just had to kind of start somewhere because there you're right, there there's so many moving parts mm-hmm. to the collection that for me it was just figuring out how to organize all of that information. And so I just had to figure out where to dig in. I wasn't it wasn't clear to me either, uh what i wanted to do at least you know you you know when you start a project you're like where is this going i yeah. i can't predict the outcome yet yeah. and so for me it was just sort of figuring things out and allowing the information to kind of lead me to where the outcome would be eventually yeah. Yeah. and um and so you know my goal really was was just to be able to offer a different version of the events really that hadn't yet been offered from a Hmong perspective or mm-hmm. from a daughter of Hmong refugees perspective. Right. Right. Um, the perspective that had been dominating the discourse on yellow rain for, for years and, and for decades really was the perspective of scientists um, and the perspective of the government, but never really did they have a Hmong voice come in and offer something that would speak and center the mong experience and Mm -hmm. so that that hopefully that i mean that was what i tried to do right Mm -hmm. with the collection
0: well so i mean i'll I'll have you explain a little bit if you would just about just the yellow rain just overall to me i mean wikipedia i think is one of the most amazing things in the world about you know like who you know who's writing that article on glasses like Mm glass you know what i mean like who's, who's that person you know it's just amazing to me the proliferation of articles and everything on there but even if you look up Yellow Rain on Wikipedia, there's a lot about the scientists he talked about and, and all that. And there's you, you, you have the last little, I don't know if you've seen that, your book is mentioned in the last little paragraph or whatever. Oh,
1: fascinating. I, I know, should right? check that out. Totally. And <laughs> yeah. so
0: it's just like, if you read the Wikipedia article, it, it makes it sound like the, the Hmong saying that the Yellow Rain was you know, based on chemical weapons and such is, has mostly been debunked. Mm hmm. Which is what, you know, what you write about in the book, how, you know, not centering voices and all kinds of things like that have made it happen. I guess I'm just uh, getting at if you could give us a little bit of history of yellow rain and, and kind of why it is something that even a lot of people don't even know about.
1: How'd yeah, to the yeah,
0: background?
1: yeah, absolutely. Um, so yellow rain is, um, you know, at its sort of just base level, it's a, it's a chemical biological weapon. And it was, um, you know, allegedly used, and I say allegedly used Mm -hmm. in quotation marks, but it was allegedly used against Hmong refugees as they were um, escaping from Laos through the jungles and into the Thai refugee camps across the border. And this was just after the U.S. withdrew from its war in Vietnam. And so we have all these Hmong refugees leaving Um, leaving the the highlands and leaving their homes. And now they're confronted with this strange, mysterious substance that they say fell from the sky, right? These yellow dots and sometimes yellow specks, and sometimes they were red or sometimes they were blue, but they were primarily yellow. And they would land on their skin, on on their clothing, on the trees and the plants around them. And many of these refugees reported that, there were very severe symptoms and illnesses related to these, these uh, this mysterious substance. And then there were also cases of fatalities as well. Um, and so when they got to the refugee camps, they told the doctors about this strange substance. And of course, at the time, the doctors didn't know what to make of it. There was a lot of questions around it. Um, what is this thing? And so uh, the US government decided to get involved because they were really keen to figure out what this was. Mm-hmm. Now, keep in mind that also they've, they've already withdrawn from the war. They've sort of trying, they're trying to sort of um, step back from the region, but yet they're really now invested in this, this, this investigation on Yellow Rain. And so they are eager to find out because they also want to know If the Soviets are the culprit, Um, this is all happening during the time of the Cold War. And so, Mm. of course, they're going to first point their fingers at the Soviets and say the Soviets provided this mysterious substance to the communists in Vietnam who then used it against the Hmong refugees. And so they the government conducted what became a very, very confusing eight year investigation into Yellow Rain. And, um, and so they would, you know, get tested, they would get samples from refugees, they would get urine, blood, whatever they could get, clothing samples, just to figure out whatever this thing was. Now, I think what's wh- where, where the story kind of turns for me is that because it was such a intriguing, uh, mystery, um, there were a lot of different players involved in the investigation, different um, departments from the CIA, the Department of Defense, the, the State Department. And then there were also um, academic scientists from throughout the country who were then testing all these samples for the government. And then the media also got involved. So it was mm-hmm. quite the frenzy for the media.
0: Right.
1: And so in the middle of all of this, you have, you know, you have the politics, which really did play a role in in, in the way that the story of Yellow Rain unfolded was because you had had a contingency of people who were very adamant in claiming that this was and is a biological weapon that was being used. Um, And, you know, whether they had good motives or not, the question really is, um, how does Yellow rain being a biological weapon served their political agenda. Mm. It allows them to, um, you know, in 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 my argument and in my research, what I found was that it allowed them to be able to leverage and exploit the harm that had been committed, mm. so they could lobby for more weapons. Mm. Um, yeah, and 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 sort of build the arsenal for the United States. Right. Then you had an, another contingency of people. Who are like no this is not a biological weapon the Hmong people are just lying or they, they don't know what's going on or they can't make heads or tails of this and they had a very particular vested interest in wanting to um, de-escalate the conflict even if they knew people might have been dying from it hmm. so that was a big concern and in the middle you have the Hmong refugees whose testimonies and stories soon faded into the background and eventually um their stories were and their testimonies were just um, invalidated mm-hmm. so the book is about really trying to challenge why why mong testimonies were dismissed mm-hmm. um and um, and to to sort of resist that and to to push against that
0: well throughout the whole um collection thank you for that thank you for that that background by the way very very thorough we appreciate that um you know you know, found poems. We talked about declassified documents. or some of the many things that are used. The first poem, when we talked about the Hmong people being in the middle, the first poem, I don't, it's I don't know if it's a paraphrase or exact, but it's quote, "White man does the dirty work through the Hmong," right? As the daughter of refugees, whether that's your voice, whether that's the narrator's voice, you know, she's quote, "Looking back at the sky that brought this yellow rain." There's the second poem, which is called "Guide for the Channeling." um just you know quote every footprint incarnate uh in sunk villages of the disregarded and this is a line that i saw quoted many times in many of the reviews a beautiful line i have been gardening myself into this remembrance can you explain that a little bit the idea of gardening yourself or gardening mm-hmm. again that whether that's you or the narrator mm-hmm. into remembrance
1: yeah yeah thanks for bringing up that line i think that's like the last line of that poem there that mm-hmm. you just referenced yeah. and you know i think i think um you know, I, I, I think of the, the work that it takes to to, to sort of build or to, to nurture, to grow something. And uh, for me, this has been a work in progress, con- an ongoing um, mm-hmm. effort, uh, an effort in which oftentimes I felt very alone in, like, I'm, no one's going to take seriously this yellow rain stuff, you know, mm-hmm. um, no one's going to, w- why would anyone care about these refugees? You know, th- 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 there was constantly doubting myself too in those moments, Mm. you know? And I think um, that last line for me is, is sort of an acknowledgement and affirmation of, of the, of the need to, to resurrect this, to remember this um, and to, to, to sort of bring it under a new light. You know, I, I think, I think sometimes things go, sometimes things get buried for a while and then you dig it back up again and the work i was doing with the research was a lot of digging 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 mm-hmm. um maybe that's where the gardening reference comes from too but yeah. but it takes a while for things to kind of reemerge, and they always do you know right. things from the past that deserve to be reckoned with um they'll come back up somehow so maybe that's where that line comes from yeah
0: oh definitely um appreciate that that makes a lot of sense and, you know, the idea of I'm thinking of like um, Roberto Lovato. He's a barrier writer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? And and just a lot of about, you know, I mean, excavating, you know, taking that term and, and making, you know, the Latin and where it comes from and digging. And, you know, a lot about El Salvador and the those, you know, the dirty wars and, you know, going all the way back. And and obviously about how much those that history informs the present. Right.
1: Absolutely. That's yeah. Very similar. Yeah. El Salvador has its own dark histories too yeah, oh,
0: yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. the um one of the next poems is declassified and you know playing with form there's the there's the big white space between columns and mm-hmm. you know one of the lines for example is may the dead be ever evidenced i just love the ever evidence is ever mm-hmm. hyphen evidenced i just love that verb that you mm-hmm. you make out of that um the titles are so are so resonant um The fact of the matter is the consequence of ugly death is one title. And this, again, makes that Wikipedia article was I don't know how you pronounce the name, but cruel, witch maybe he's the he's the host of Radiolab.
1: Yeah, he was. uh, He was one of the hosts for that particular episode that I referenced. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: And, you know, I, I don't know a lot about Radiolab, but I'm thinking NPR. I'm thinking like kind of you might think naturally more on the liberal side. And he, right. Yes. He, right. Mm-hmm. He was taking the task. It sounds like rightfully so for really being incredibly insensitive and, and, you know, racist towards the, the person who was on among American writer. And she was trying to get her point across and he seemed to kind of just dismiss it out of hand. Am I getting that right?
1: That's, uh, yeah, that's pretty much the the summary of it, what happened. And, and yeah, it, it it really did create a firestorm of responses from listeners, uh-huh. from the people in the monk people in the Hmong community who who felt that the the way that Cal uh, Kalia Yang and her uncle who were on the show mm-hmm. had just been um, unfairly treated, um, you know, they, it, uh, to me, like, when I listened to that, it almost felt like they were ambushed, yeah. you know, um, and said, hey, by the way, did you know it was actually just bee poop, you know? Right. Um, and so, it, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. so
0: some, some of the lines also from that poem, you, ref, you, you refuse our dead as though we were never alive. I mean, there's so much in the collection about dehumanization. Just say what you mean to say that is Hmong, keep your dying to yourself. And that's, uh, that's so deep. I've, you know, obviously it's, it's sarcasm or irony or whatever you want to say, but it's just, um, it's just brutal. And that's what you've said. That's what's, you know, the idea was a lot of government and uh, figures were just kind of like, hey, you're you're behind the scenes. We don't need to hear your voices. A couple poems later in the collection you wrote about um, that the Hmong were made into mar- marginalia. How do you pronounce that correctly?
1: Yeah, marginalia. Mm-hmm.
0: And so, so much about about dehumanization. There's cargo you know, the Hmong people being called the cargo. You were talking a little bit earlier about you know like the the blood samples and stool samples and all that, and just the way that you break it down is so. I think of dehumanization as in, you know, I think of like, you know, maybe with like the Jewish people and the way the Nazis would use those terms of vermin and that kind of thing. But you write so well about how it's dehumanization, but it's through more like polite language. Hmm. Right. All the government, the way that, you know, the way the government writes up these things, you know, they write about the people as if they're, you know, they're, they themselves are samples. If they among themselves are, you know, animals to be, to be studied. And you'd write about, you know, the ways that like some of the samples were just like, oops, like, oh, ice got into it and this one was spilled. And, and, you know, to me, there's just nothing more that can be said about dehumanization. I wonder what you found with all of the looking into all the science and the samples and just the way that you're talking about how it's so important for the Hmong people, obviously their lands, but this idea of even being taken away from their land is so much maybe more important than it would be for some other cultures and to be taken Samples, blood, stool, is just like a double, double indemnity, you know.
1: Yeah, I. I it's a great assessment, by the way, of the work. Um, your thoughts here, and I, I think, um, yeah. So I think that's a really interesting and and sort of thorough assessment of the work. Is is thinking about the uh, concept of dehumanization, because I think when I was going through a lot of the documents, it was clear to me that the The Hmong were being viewed as collateral damage in this mm-hmm. whole process, right? And in many ways, disposable as a result. Think about this as being, a, you know, the fact that the proxy, the secret war was a proxy war too right, for the right. United States. And it was just the necessity of needing the Hmong bodies and the Hmong men to do to do that work of war. And so there was definitely a sense for me of dehumanization, of disposability even. Um, of collateral um, damage and collateral beings. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And, and then, and then of course, so many of the samples that they used Mm -hmm. um, to, to try to figure out yellow rain by the time they had arrived to laboratories, they were already degraded um, and had deteriorated. So, so much of the work was eventually just futile. Um, Mm -hmm. there was no way that the government was going to really be able to make a definitive assessment of what this substance was, um, as much as they tried. And, and there were instances where they came very close and, and, um, you know, they, there, there was one sample that they were able to, you know, ID, uh, for, for this toxin. Um, but you know, that still wasn't enough to convince the naysayers.
0: Mm Well, yeah, like you said, definitive, right? And and you you write about it. You, I mean, one can never fully know, but it's like you're kind of saying, like, hey, did they have the did the scientists or the government officials have the end already in mind, right? If we right, muddy, a- if we muddy the waters, right, then it's like, well, we can't definitively say.
1: Right, it's a good question, right? You know, of course, like the the end in mind of something, and and you know. One of the things that I came up with too in the research that really surprised me was just finding documents where Yellow Rain was referred to as a project, mm. um, and 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 uh, not not that that is going to make anything definitive either, but that that you would associate the idea of Yellow Rain as being a project mm. um, within a document of the CIA mm-hmm. was rather alarming. Mm.
0: Yeah. You know? Well, yeah, I mean, obviously, there's so many double meanings. Like, you know, you use you use specimens. Like, obviously, you could talk about the people as specimens, the actual the, the literal specimens um, as well. And mm-hmm. right, and just the idea of you you do something so incredible with where you make like the surveys or questionnaires that were given to the people. You manipulate them themselves into poems, like changing the word order and all of that. And that, to me, again, just just um, you know, reinforce this idea of like clinical is the term, right? Just very clinical um, language, mm-hmm. talking about people's lives, talking about people who right. who died, and and many. You also write about how you know chemical warfare, if it was that, in which ways it was that, like that's a slow death, that's a slow sickness, right? That affects mm-hmm. people so much, and that's not something that that makes the headlines as much, right?
1: Right, yeah, it it, it isn't, and it's also you know, it's, it's, it's also something in in the case of, you know, with yellow rain being thought of as a sort of a biological weapon, it was something that was easy to be able to say that it could have just been a phenomenon of nature, right? It wasn't, it wasn't actually a weapon. It was just uh, something in the weather or something in, 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 the biology of the environment or something in the animals that caused the, these Hmong people to claim that they were ill. And so there there were so many ways to provide alternative answers to what they were going through. And that was also a way to kind of, to, you know, make, to, to obscure things further, right? Yeah, to muddy the waters,
0: then then we have the bees you 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 reference that a little bit and obviously there are so many questions that i mean in the end a lot of these you know know, supposedly prestigious scientists and institutions said well you know it's their bee feces is bee 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 crap bee poop and you know that does that, that does this and you bring up the questions one by one many throughout this this collection like hey these are people who have lived here for longer than the scientists have Why hasn't it happened before? Why, why during the wet season or dry season, you know, why, why hasn't it happened all year? Why did it just happen at this time? Like so many coincidences that couldn't possibly all be, you know, working at the same time. Um, Is that just, I guess, another way of de-emphasizing Hmong voices? And, um, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of things about like, no Western observer, no Western observer as if that Western person is worth five times his voice and the Hmong person, none, or, you know, so I kind of wonder how, how that happened, especially with this idea of the bees and this, this hypothesis.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The bees were sort of a major turn and twist in the story of yellow rain. And I don't, I don't think people were expecting that, but you Mm. know, it's uh, we're expecting bees to now be thrust into the spotlight of yellow rain. Um but the the theory of the bees was developed by a a scientist out at Harvard who had claimed that what the Hmong people were experiencing was as a result of bees honeybees defecating on the refugees as they were running through the jungles, and that's what got them sick, right? So that's the theory. Um, and that is the theory that I think in, in sort of the, the scientific community still stands today. Yeah, yeah. Um, it so means. it's not changed. Right. Um, and it's very troubling, uh, because there are so many counter arguments to the B theory and yet it's still, it's still what stands. Mm. Right. Um, and the scientist who developed that theory is still purporting it, right. uh, today, um, And so, you know, the, it's, it's, it's just been, you know, if you ask a Hmong person, though, of course they're, they're going to be, that's, that's, that's That's
0: ridiculous, right?
1: Right. Absolutely. That's ludicrous. Like that, the, how can that even be? Um, And, and like I said, Hmong people have coexisted with bees or in the jungles. So they, they would have known the difference, um, and it, you know and and this going back to what I was saying earlier about this other contingency of people who were you know eager to sort of deescalate the the war or mm-hmm. to de-escalate the conflict, even if they were aware that people might have been dying. Um, and and and, and, you, and this was one of the ways they could do that was to come up with what I believe, in my opinion, the B theory. Mm-hmm. Um, as a means to de-escalate, um, mm. even if, you know, like I said, even if they knew Hmong people were dying. Mm. Again, the lives of Hmong people being too disposable.
0: Well, I mean, obviously, I mean, we talked about a lot, and obviously there's such an overlap with dehumanization and just like empire and colonization and, you know, the the secret war. I mean, there's, you, you quote some people saying, you quote this one man saying, I think he was a general of some sort, definitely worked with the military, Basically saying like, hey, this secret war, like we get way, way, way more bang for the buck was the term used. And he's not talking about, you know, buying organic lettuce versus regular. He's talking about like the secret war in Laos and also I think in Cambodia, right?
1: Yeah, it was, was primarily in Laos, but there were also other operations that they yeah. were conducting definitely in Cambodia, right?
0: right? So versus like the quote, you know, the Vietnam War, quote unquote, like in Vietnam, mm-hmm. he's saying like there's so much more bang for the buck and that just sums up so much about just empire and mm-hmm. like, Hey, it's making us money here. And and yes, there is the collateral damage that you referred to, but you know, yeah, so, so be it. Right.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. That, I think that was a, a, a quote from uh, the ambassador to Laos okay. um, in that epigraph. I remember that one though, that, that poem specifically. Um, And yeah, it, it, you know, thinking back to the fact that, that the, the CIA recruited Hmong men to serve, in this proxy war, because at the time the, the United States government could not violate the neutrality of Laos, and so what better way to get around that than to get the natives to do it for them? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and that's exactly what they did with the secret war: was they got the Hmong tribesmen to fight on their behalf. Um, and it's not unlike what they've done in other parts of the world, sure. like sure. Afghanistan, El Salvador, again. Um, and, and so this is just a, sort of the constant pattern of war and occupation and empire that we, we have seen and continue to see in, in this world.
0: We talk, we talk about like that clinical language, like, you know, what's the word, um, anti- uh, sterile kind of language, right?
1: Yeah. You know, like mm-hmm.
0: the, it used to be called the school of the Americas, which is, you know, they would train um mm-hmm. many right you know about that i mean I'm now familiar
1: with that yeah now
0: it's like whmsc or you know it's like it's incredible you know western hemisphere school of this and that it sounds so like mickey mouse mm-hmm. you know but it's but it's the thing that you know like you're talking about where they wouldn't be able to do that in laos you know on the record but if you train people to do it if you have the quote-unquote native people do it then you're you're skirting the laws right
1: exactly yeah you're not breaking any laws necessarily but
0: sure.
1: um but you really are still um you know interfering of course in the conflict so that that was definitely an issue with with Laos and and i think that that's part of the narrative that people still have not sort of fully grasped about the secret war mm. so, uh, uh, these days when people talk about the secret war even in the Hmong community when people talk about the secret war they just talk about it as oh that was the time when the united states recruited our uncles and our fathers to go v- and our grandfathers to go fight mm. uh the communists but wow. the the but but the but the the narrative the sim the more sinister version of that narrative um is not often fully grasped or, or, or um, offered. Sure. And it's, and it's, and for me, it's not, it's a narrative that like hits me deeply. And every time I write and I talk about the war, it's important for me to like really clarify that it was a proxy war, mm. you know? Yeah.
0: Well, I mean, talk about ifs you um, towards the end, it's, Uh, It was all in the trajectory of things, the simple consequence of an event, one one move in the wrong direction, turned the situation futile. If the State Department had never uttered the word, and there's the, I guess, an M-dash, right? Yes. If Mm -hmm. Seagrave Seagrave had waited, if Hague had not been so hasty, if the BWC, Biological Weapons, what's Mm -hmm. the C stand for? I'm sorry. Uh,
1: Biological Weapons
0: Convention. Convention. So it's like a treaty. Mm Mm-hmm. If the U.S. government had more fully, if they had been more diligent, et cetera, such a no colonizing of, I can't stop mourning the what ifs. I inherited yellow rain as I inherited, as I also inherited the lost. When my parents recalled what they know about yellow rain, they did not speak of bees. Only in whispers did the elders say anything about the rain and those who fell beneath it. Names and faces left to the mountains. I mean, just beautiful and wrenching and. Um, you know, if it were fiction, it would be, be. You could say, "Oh, beautiful writing." Glad it's not true. But mm-hmm. obviously, it happened about historical events. Yeah. I I wonder um, if you could maybe read the last poem and just maybe talk a little bit about about the resistance, about um, inheritance, but also about you know like things you talked about a little bit about people really getting the word out there, making you know maybe even like I don't know maybe even lobbying government uh, officials, maybe like retroactively going back. Um, you know, it's never too late. I'm sure that it's um, it's harder as the years go on, obviously. But I just wonder if if you could talk a little bit about um, the future and like what, how important your work is. I know you're you're very humble, you're not going to pat yourself on the back, but it's incredibly important. Like, is that something that you want to take this with a group of, of lawmakers or, or just grassroots? And you want to get, you know, a proclamation or you want to get um, mm-hmm. reparations? Like, I, I wonder kind of how that works
1: yeah that's a really great um forward thinking question and it it was one that I was also thinking too in the process of writing this book is well well what 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 do I imagine the call to action to be um what am I inviting readers to do here and you know it's i i wish that I had had like i wish i have had have and had had and still have the capacity to do all of that, um, it, it it was it was exhausting alone just writing the book and doing the research and and then to think about the um, the forward impact I'd like it to have is 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 another layer to the work as well and uh, but I think it's also a really important sort of advocacy layer to the work. Um, I've never you know I have I'll be honest and say that I haven't thought through specifically about you know, the idea of a proclamation or demanding something in return. Um, but now I, I I like, I mean, I'm not close to that idea either. I, 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 I'm I kind of intrigued, but, you know, that could be something I could do. Um, and I'm also curious to know what readers would want to get out of it. You know, it, it also kind of depends on that too, how, how engaged readers are and how angry readers are. And I have gotten a lot of people who've read this book and, who are just, you know, furious at what happened and why nothing has happened as a result and, and how this theory can still stand. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see how the work evolves. Um, but if I were to say like what I would hope that could happen, if if anything, if, if this book allows a reader to be able to at the very least learn about Yellow Rain, and know about yellow rain and know about the the harm that had been committed, then I think my maybe that's enough maybe that's even enough for me. You know, just the awareness that it can can offer.
0: Well, I mean it definitely provides that. And it's just like, you know, with what's going on in Florida and so many other places, it's like I'm sure that, you know, maybe this would be against some of those those rules because it would make people feel bad or guilty or, you know, it's 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 divisive. And like you said, I don't know how you don't read this book and be furious.
1: Yeah, yeah, right. I mean, and, I, and I'm writing the book the whole time too. I was furious, you know.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, yeah, yeah. So I, so, we'll, so we'll see. We'll see what what comes of it. Um, I'm still like the book came out in 2021, but I'm still getting people responding to it, oh, reacting to it. Um, I'm, I'm even getting people who were part of the investigation Mm. contacting me too back in the eighties. Yeah. Who are reaching out and saying, I love what you've done with this work. Um, You, you, you know, what you've offered here is, is, is what I believe is moving in the right direction of what happened to. So that's been really reaffirming is to, is to get that kind of reaction from the people who were on the ground at the time that yellow rain was happening.
0: What age more or less would you say they are now? I, would, I know it depends, but
1: yeah, I would probably say they were, some of them are probably in their sixties, okay. sixties, maybe early seventies. I imagine. Yeah. Yeah.
0: You think about like, you know, people trying to catalog the voices of like, you know, Holocaust survivors and, you know, um, this idea of like 67, that's not, that's not that old. You know?
1: Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. I wonder if you could uh, thank you for that answer and thank you for, just speaking to me about the book, it's uh, yeah, I think I think it's got a, a, a long life ahead of it. You know, I think it's, yeah, on, it's I so it's so new in the world that, that I can see it being taught in a history class. I can see it being taught just straight for the poetry part of it, just in an English class and a creative writing class. Got so much to go, and and I love for the the listeners to hear. Uh, you know, maybe the last poem, if you don't mind.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, the last poem being and yet still more. Mm-hmm. Is that the poem you're thinking about? Yes, yeah. please. Okay. Yes, please. Great. Okay. And yet still more, that refugees somewhere and everywhere are waiting, that the waiting suffocates the ankles, that the body cannot be fed from the waiting, that the spew of shrapnel from hubris tongues enact the waiting, that waiting is never certain of itself, that waiting could change its mind over morning. That waiting won't change its mind, that elbows cradle the waiting at night, that all are conceived and born into waiting, that the waiting can span the range of two continents, that waiting is a kind of forgetting and forgetting is the sea, that waiting is a silent syllable in never mind that even the dead wait, that waiting is not the same as faith that not all waiting is created equal. That waiting drips from the sap hammer of a noose. That waiting turns to hunger, turns to water, turns to going, turns to too late. That a refugee somewhere is waiting. That a refugee everywhere is waiting. That waiting has no documentation of its history. That refugees carry a surplus of waiting in plastic bags. That the ancestors wait. That waiting is given to refugees as a disease is given to the blood. That refugees wait. That all waiting floats into the exosphere. That refugee fathers sit outside of high schools waiting for the bell. That landmines excel at waiting. That a sleeping refugee is still waiting even in a state of dreaming. That most waiting happens in daylight. That wait and home are not spelled the same. That the refugee industry is built on the business of waiting. That refugees are put somewhere to wait. That refugees are put everywhere to wait. That wait is the refugee. That a refugee is waiting. That waiting must go on. That there is yet more waiting. That wait still and still more. That yet, even that next year, that the year after, that ever always, that more, that now, that wait is the refugee,
0: thank you so much. The different uses of wait, to wait, waiting, wait is a noun, wait is a verb, someone you know the opposites of so oh that a refugee somewhere is waiting, that a refugee everywhere is waiting. that that image of the surplus of waiting in plastic bags the ancestors waiting in in addition to the refugees that idea of the refugee father sitting outside of a high school is that kind of like more like the like the banal i guess
1: it it is it can be thought of as sort of like the mundane and and it just it was it's it's sort of like a visual memory that i have of my dad always coming to pick us up from high school Mm -hmm. waiting outside for the bell Uh, to ring um just with all the other oh refugee God. fathers, too,
0: <laughs> oh my gosh yeah. and, then, and and then ending with that weight is the refugee that weight is the refugee um to to look at it on the page I'm looking at here it's every the first line of every the first of every line is that that refugee somewhere and yet still more. Thank you for reading that. Thank you for this incredibly important collection. congrats on all the the big time awards and, and, and nominations. I mean, the Pulitzer prize is kind of a big deal, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, I'd say so. Right.
0: <laughs> I mean, that's up there with some of the greats and it, it deserves it. Um, shout out a little bit, like where we, sh- where you'd like us to buy the book, um, contact info, social media, all that good stuff.
1: Yeah. You can buy the book off of my press's website, gray wolf press or, um, bookshop.org, okay. uh, which is an indie um, online bookseller website. Um, and then I'm on Twitter at um, mydervang, myder My underscore vang. Um, yep. And uh, thank you so much for having me. it has been great to talk about the work and be able to, to dive into it and share it with your listeners.
0: Well, I appreciate you so much and appreciate the work. Thank you so much. And uh, it's been a pleasure. Looking forward to anything that you have coming in the future.
1: Great. Thank you.
0: Have a great rest of the day. You too. pleasure it has been today to speak with Mai Der Vang for episode 167. Continue good luck to her with her writing and I'm so looking forward to continuing to follow her career and her important work. You can now subscribe to the Chills at Will podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review. You can also ask for it by name using Alexa and find it on Stitcher, Spotify, and on Amazon Music. Follow me on Instagram where I'm at Chills at Will podcast or on Twitter where I'm at Chills at Will P01. You can watch this and other episodes on YouTube. Watch and subscribe to the Chills at Will podcast channel. Sign up now for the Chills at Will podcast Patreon. It can be found at patreon.com backslash Chills at Will podcast Peter Real. My last name is spelled R-I-E-H-L. Check out the page that describes the benefits of a Patreon membership, including cool swag and bonus episodes. Thanks in advance for supporting my one-man show, my DIY podcast, and my extensive reading research, editing, and promoting to keep this independent podcast pumping out high-quality content. The intro song for the Chills of Will podcast is Wind Down Instrumental Version, and the other song played on this episode was Hoops Instrumental by Matt Whitehour, and both songs are used through archesaudio.com. Please tune in for episode 168 with Duraziz Amna. She is from Rawalpindi, Pakistan, now living in Newark, New Jersey, and her work has appeared in the New York Times and Al Jazeera, among others. She was selected as Forbes 30 Under 30 in 2022. Her standout debut novel is American Fever. This episode will air on February 21st. For now, thanks again for listening. I hope that these uncertain days bring you texts by writers with mad skills like My Dervang, whose work, like Yellow Rain, gives you chills at will.